This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Is that your opening? Is that how we start the show now? Hello. Hey, and well met. No. Um, all right. So we got this email a few days ago, and I know we're going to do this whole like dedicated Q&A thing for next... Well, this technically this month's bonus episode. <laughs> this is the one for May. It's June 2nd. It's from it's from our listener, Stephanie, and she, she's ask, she says, Hi, Andrew. You don't seem to be all there lately. Is something bothering you? Are you getting tired of doing the show? I hope not because you're a very funny man and I really like listening to Overdue. I, I feel like I need to clear the air here. I need to clear some things up. Can I just say, listening real public. quick, yeah. can I just mm-hmm. say, what's this person's name? Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Nice to meet you. My name is Craig. I'm here too also. I'm doing mm-hmm. fine. Thank you for asking. Now let's turn our attention you, back to Andrew. You probably sound fine though. Yeah, listen, I, I just, but you're listen, the funny need... one. That, you're the funny one that she's worried about. I'm just saying am, I'm a little I'm... jealous it's really and it's really hard it's hard to be like the funny one the cute one and the smart one like it's it's a, it's a burden i'm just every ross day over here I'm just <laughs> ross <laughs> say pivot pivot <laughs> okay good good you're a good ross okay but i just i need to get my mojo back I need to get my energy level back up i need to i need to get the old magic back because i'm fine <laughs> i am trying to buy a house so like there's a big if you could hear like the asterisk in my voice when i said fine it's about it's about the size of a house house. the asterisk is about the size of a house and so i'm uh, i'm fine but i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna amp it up this week so or this month last (laughs) i'm gonna amp it up last month (laughs) i see for our may bonus episode i feel like every time we come into a show and i can see it in your eyes i can see it in your cute boy eyes that you're like i don't know if i'm feeling it this week and i'm like oh i don't know and then set that those books just light a spark in your eyes listen man the the mic comes on and it's (laughs) showtime welcome showtime Welcome to Showtime. Oh no, welcome to Overdue. <laughs> it's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. In case you didn't know that already. And uh, this is a bonus episode. Thanks to our illustrious Patreon supporters. Uh, we're a little late because, as Andrew just said, he's buying a house. As I didn't just say, sometimes life happens. Sometimes life happens, man. What's There's a song lyric for this, I think. It's like rain on your yeah. wedding day. That's the exact one it's I was free thinking of. Ride when your podcast is late. Why didn't music just stop after Jagged Little Pill came out? Like I feel like we people keep making music because we're trying to make the best music, right? <laughs> yeah. Once we hit the best music, everyone yeah, we will should just like stop. we got get to Jagged Little Pill, and we're like, okay, we we there's nothing else to do here, and we should have turned our attention to some other kind of artistic endeavor. Like, who knows what kind of crazy stuff, like bubble houses, we could be living in if like all the guys from Coldplay had become architects or something because music was over by yeah, the time we, they got to it. <laughs> we hadn't perfected houses yet, but mm-hmm. Alanis. She really knocked music out of the park. She did. Now that's what I call music. (laughs) Interesting that you bring up a seminal record of the 1990s, Andrew, because we're going to be talking about uh, this week, this episode, this month, a book by Marsha Clark. It's called Guilt by Association. Mm -hmm. And I read this book because you found it and thought, hey, Craig, you got real obsessed with that FX OJ show that took place in the 90s. You might like this book. I did. And I have to provide a little bit more shading there. I saw not this book, but her latest book. Ah. And I saw it because it was the ad on my Kindle one day. (laughs) Okay. 
That's respectable. I recently invested in a for real Kindle and I'm too cheap to buy the version without the ads. So like I've seen stuff for like mattresses and this and, and a Marsha Clark book. You look real tired from all that reading. Here's yeah. a mattress. Wanna uh, go to sleep? Wanna go to sleep? Now this book does not take place in the nineties. It takes place in I guess twenty eleven when she wrote the book. But sure. Marsha Clark is a figure of the 1990s. Yeah, she really is. Um, she was born in 1953, and she is, as we've alluded to, best known for being the head prosecutor on the O.J. Simpson murder, tri- murder trial in uh, 1994 and 95. Mm-hmm. Um, she was admitted to the State Bar of California in 79, but after the O.J. case, which was just a a carnival Yep, for reasons that I'm sure that you are better equipped to talk about than than I am. Sure, um, she actually resigned and stopped practicing law altogether, which I didn't think that I knew. I didn't know that um, either. Even even watching the show because the show ends like not long after the verdict, and everyone's kind of confused by it. Even the yeah. people who win. Are so she confused. she hung up her her spurs. Lawyers wear her lawyers her lawyers her lawyer spurs. She hung those up. After the OJ case. And then she's spent all the time since doing sort of lawyer adjacent things. Yeah. Um, She was on a uh, in the in the very early 2000s. She was on this syndicated Judge Judy esque show called Power of Attorney. Oh, this show sounds so good. Everyone was was on this show. There are clips on YouTube. And uh, yeah, she was like a guest attorney and it got canceled. Wikipedia blames the cancellation like partly on 9-11 and partly on the cost of all the lawyers. Yeah, it says like, okay, it cost a lot, ratings were low, and 9-11 preemptions prevented the second season judge from like getting his momentum with the audience. Yeah, never forget. Oh, God. <laughs> really not great. And uh, she's... she's, done, she's I think she's been like a, you know, on news channels where you're like a bunch of talking heads talking about something and they have somebody up who's just like billed as an expert. Yes. I think she was an expert on TV a few times. And then uh, since 2011, she's written five novels. There's Guilt by Association, Guilt by Degrees, Killer Ambition, and The Competition, which are all in the same series about this this lawyer named Rachel Knight, I guess. And then the most recent one is called Blood Defense. And then there's one due out in November called Moral Defense, and those are about Samantha Brinkman. I really like the title Blood Defense. Blood Defense. It's like, a, I think the cover of the book has like a bloody gavel on it or something. It's pretty great. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a gavel with a big splat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, it's interesting you, you mentioned her being brought up as an expert. Like, even early on, it was stuff like Entertainment Tonight and more recently stuff like CNN. I still can't believe that Entertainment Tonight's a television show. Um, but she's been on CNN. <laughs> Wait, why? Just, just, just what what purpose does it fulfill? Entertainment. Ba-da, tonight. Extra, extra. That's the other show. Ba-da, ba-da. It's just oh, it's just like classy TMZ. It's hmm. really what it is. I don't <laughs> get it out of here. Um, but part of her expertise... And it factors into this book. She spent 10 years on what is called the Special Trials Unit in L.A. You know, she, as you said. My least favorite Law and Order. I know. (laughs) Well, Law and Order L.A. and then Special Trials Unit. Yeah. (laughs) She, as you said, she was admitted to the bar in 1979. And then she joined the L.A. District Attorney's Office in 81. And as she has said in a couple interviews about this Rachel's Night series that she started writing in 2011... Um, the special trials unit is unique in that once a case comes in, uh, the prosecutor or the attorney from the DA's office immediately starts working with whoever the assigned detective or police officer is. Instead of, I think, what I'm more familiar with from film and television, the Law and Order or The Wire, where like the DA's job is to get the warrants and to help build the case and then take all of the legwork from the field and, like, make a good case. Right, yeah. Whereas what Marcia Clark is describing is a bit more of, like, a Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney scenario. <laughs> and I, I don't know if everyone has played that series of Japanese video games. Andrew, it's would you very... like to explain them for our audience? All right, it's, it's very good. It's modeled on the Japanese justice system, but, like, super loosely. <laughs> um, basically, Phoenix Wright is this... 
attorney who basically stumbles into cases and solutions for all the cases. Yeah. And every single trial takes place over the course of three days, and there are surprise witnesses, each more surprising than the last. And then often when you have someone on the stand and you're interrogating them really good, they'll like turn into their final form, <laughs> which is I'm not I'm not sure if that happened during the OJ case, but but, but what it, you're saying it's is it's a um it's a version of the law that is perhaps simplified for dramatic or entertainment uh, effect a little something. bit. I'm I'm also saying like there are whole parts of those games and whole parts of this book that involve the DA like out in the field doing hands-on evidence gathering. Okay. That I was, it was, I was not under the impression that it's their job to do. That's true. You you do need to um, tap on the touchscreen with your stylus and uh, use luminol <laughs> and stuff to find blood. I'm glad that you have retained so much information from the Phoenix Wright series. I've played six of these games, <laughs> six of them. Okay. Uh, and I, I think it's interesting that she moved into writing these books because you know she had been a consultant on a Lifetime show called For the People. That was a legal drama. She's pitched a couple different television shows. This book was actually optioned for like a pilot on TNT. We know drama. Oh, yeah. Cap, you know, TN. <laughs> um, and she they said in an interview that uh, with the Wall Street Journal that she always loved crime fiction and she was the type of person that would come home from work all day you know, working on all this stuff and then still go like watch a bunch of SVU. And she found out that Dick Wolf collaborated with her hero, Robert Morgenthau. I'm going to say that's how you pronounce his name. Mm -hmm. uh, Sounds close. The DA for New York city, a former DA of New York city. Um, And I don't know, like I, Laura, Laura really likes SVU and likes law and order. I don't know if it's not. Susanna does too. Okay. SVU in particular. I think she's moved on to Criminal Minds at this point. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, she did watch a whole lot of SVU. Is that a thing you've ever like fallen into? I, I can watch it if I'm watching it with her and like hanging out. I don't like seek it out. Yeah, like I, if I'm going to do a procedural show, I'm more about the, I guess the law side. I'm more about the procedural like investigation part. Yeah. And less about the courtroom part. Like all of my favorite procedural shows, I mean, they, they each episode ends with the perpetrator like tearfully confessing the entire thing that they did. Okay. Okay. Even though their lawyer is telling them, hey, man, don't say it. <laughs> but they just have to get it off their chest like every okay. single time. They don't even like it, the court. The trial is implied like after, but it's not. They already confessed. So okay. obviously they did it. Because I was asking, like, Laura why she really likes SVU, and she was like, I don't know if I can tell you. I just really like it. Um, but she did say that for her, there is that monster of the week element, right? There's, the like, the crime to be solved, which, as friend of the show, uh, Catherine Van Aerdonk from that podcast that you do, what's it called? Appointment Television. Great plug. Uh, she, I asked her uh, why we like these shows, and she kind of like and gave, us a, you a, gave us a a book <laughs> a mini dissertation on why like our li- human lizard brains enjoy this you know the closing of a good mystery and how courtroom drama allows us to like you know there's a built-in story arc to it even if we don't like the outcome and we like when you know the crime gets batted back and forth in the courtroom but also that uh there, what Laura was saying is that there are these overarching stories that happen where you get to know these characters. And I, I do feel like this book, before we move into it, I can feel like it's setting up a world and setting up a series because which the character did. Yeah. Which it did. And, and like the characters are positioned to do more than what's in the book. And I actually respect Marsha Clark for like not trying to cram it all into that book. Mm hmm. In a sense, it, it like it doesn't overstay its welcome. The elements that kind of flesh these characters out don't overstay their welcome, but it does feel like the first season of a television show. Okay. Um, before we jump into the book proper, I just the reason, like you said, the reason I I told you about this is because I knew you were super into the American Crime Story. Yeah. Thing. Like, what about that captured your 
attention. I know, I know I'm going to get around to it eventually. And I know that part of the appeal is just like when that was happening, we were just old enough to be aware that it was happening, but not nearly old enough to understand anything about it. Yeah. That's a huge part of the appeal. I also think, uh, and this book doesn't have any of this, but the nineties as a period piece is a thing that's only starting to happen in television. Sure. And that is a huge element of that show. Like the burgeoning, like the burgeoning 24 hour news cycle, the crazy fashion that the ties are insane. On that show. <laughs> um, the interesting things it has to say about, or just questions it raises. I don't know that it has to say a lot. It, it just raises a lot of questions about, race and gender in terms of both the professional world and celebrity because both Cochran and Johnny Cochran and Marsha Clark uh, on opposite sides of the trial were like skyrocketed into celebrity fame when really they were just there to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, you could say Johnny Cochran is a bit of a showman, but, um, and always was, but like their gender, you know, Marsha Clark as a woman Johnny Cochran as a black man, O.J. Simpson as a black as a black man. Um, her partner Darden, what's his first name? I don't remember. Chris. Chris Darden. Thank you. Um, him as a black man, like that, all factors into that case in a way that is very crucial to how the case was perceived. And the show does a really good job of telling that story. Mm-hmm. Also, and- also, it just like. It takes its time with different elements of the trial. There's like one or two episodes that are just dedicated to or uses the jury as a lens for how the trial is experienced. And it's a real it when it happens, it's a real clear shift in perspective that's very helpful for the audience. Okay. Cool. Um yeah, I was reading um Marsha Clark did a bunch of interviews like while the show was happening and then after the show happened, and it was partly I think at least partly to promote her book, which like I can hardly blame her. Like, go for it, Marsha <laughs> Clark. But she did this interview with, did I close the tab? Well, the book she wrote about the OJ trial was called Without a Doubt, which I think you might have been talking about. She was obviously, you know, happy to promote all of the novels she's written. But the the book she wrote, she co-wrote with another person after she kind of left her practice was called without a doubt. No, this was, this was an interview that she did in April Okay, about specifically like the OJ trial was ending. And so she plugs her book at the beginning and then um, they just kind of ask her what watching the show was like and, and just questions about the trial itself. And there was one thing that ties into what you're talking about. Um, So the question is uh, Sarah Paulson. And that's the person who played Marsha Clark on the TV series. Yep. Uh, Sarah Paulson has admitted that even she drank some of the proverbial Kool-Aid regarding you, that you were shrill and aggressive. Do you feel redemption? And uh, Clark says, well, I don't know if I would use that word. That makes me seem like a criminal. And then she laughs. (laughs) Uh, But I know what you mean. I will say that it's pretty incredible to feel finally somewhat understood. That's it. And I'm so grateful that the show has put a spotlight on the sexism aspects, which weren't discussed that much, even in the aftermath of the trial. So Mm -hmm. there was like this whole level of it that we just that just got lost in the shuffle i guess at the yeah. time yeah well and maybe and i guess i'd then we as a society were like not at a point where we were actively questioning that kind of thing i think as much as we are now yeah we're questioning how gender affects our our behavior and and you know gender as both a thing that is personal and private and a thing that can be systemically yeah. used like if the, if this trial were taking place now there would be just no end to the hot takes about the gender aspects which would be good i think on yes. the, on on balance <laughs> well but and there were hot takes during that trial about like her hair and her outfit and stuff and i think but today that's just patriarchal nonsense i know i think and today it would be about there would be oh, hot takes. All this patriarchal nonsense. Yeah, yeah, there would be hot takes on the hot takes. Get your hot takes <laughs> for the side of hot takes. Well, they're really they're ref- refried takes at that point. <laughs> well, and I'm glad that you bring up her personal experience in the trial because a lot of the questions regarding these series of books, as we as we pivot into the book, uh, people asked her, "Is Rachel Knight that you know the main character of this series? You, um, because she does work in the L.A. special uh, special trials? Is that what I called it?" 
that's the right word, special trials unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Clark said in one interview, Rachel Knight is better, smarter, cooler, and tougher than I am, but she's also a lot like me. <laughs> she has a big mouth. She often gets in trouble. She pissed people off, especially judges, and she's not really good with authority, but she is really good at her job. Yeah, I mean, that's the, and that's the thing that all fiction writers, I think, have to deal with is just like the element of themselves that they can't get all the way out of their protagonists a lot of the time. And fiction um, writers who are writing about real world experience. Yeah, right? there's yeah, there's that. And I think it's I think it's especially like a first novel or like an early mm-hmm. novel kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the sophomore slump is often like a real thing for some mm-hmm. people because that first creative act is like born out of your life experience and it's the thing that it's like the thing that's you that you made and yeah like, and you were like 28 when you did it and now like a year and a half later you you have to come up with this whole new <laughs> this whole new thing even though you haven't lived that much more life experience since then you know what? This just makes me mad that Lin Manuel Miranda is as talented as he is. Because first he made In the Heights, and then his second one was Hamilton. Yeah. What a jerk! <laughs> God, <laughs> it's really unfair. Yeah, what kind of life are you living where In the Heights is like a footnote in your <laughs> in your bibliography? Yeah, your you work with like a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright that like set New York afire is just like, oh, well, that's like the first thing he did. Yeah, whatever. <sighs> whatever. That was like Rubber Soul. <laughs> and Hamilton is Sergeant Pepper. Um, even though I, I like Rubber Soul more than I like Sergeant Pepper. I, that's just I me. do. I do too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> cool. Uh, let's talk about this book. Let's talk about this book, I guess. How do you, do you know how you want to talk about it? Because you were saying, you're saying that as with many like courtroom or legal thrillers, the real thrust of this is just like finding out what happens. Yes. And so uh, I don't know if you want to just like out and out spoil the whole thing or how you want to proceed from here. I don't really want to spoil the whole thing, but I will say that like if I'm setting, I'm going to try and set up the main two cases in this book because there are two primary uh, criminal cases that drive all of the action and if you like get an inkling that you think you know who's at fault uh i'll say you might be you're probably right but the joy of the book is figuring out why if like okay, so it's it's not like a, an episode of a procedural where it's the person you least suspect no and i've actually found it's that the, the person you probably suspect the the episodes of of procedurals that i've really enjoyed are the ones where it's like there's someone that you mostly suspect but you've got to like find out why or like you've got to unpack how they hit it you know that's i mean that's basically her job as a prosecutor right is like she her job is to come at it from the assumption that the person who she's prosecuting did the thing yes of course (laughs) and so she's got she's got to take all the evidence and and put together the strongest case that the person did the thing. Correct. So, yeah, that's okay. That's that's interesting. So, as I've said, uh, the main character is Rachel Knight. She's a prosecutor in the district attorney's office of L.A. She works for the special trials unit. She's a little brash, she, but she's good at her job and she's well respected. Uh, she has a good friend named Tony. Uh, Tony, she is also a prosecutor. Um, and is involved in a relationship with one of the judges that's on the circuit, and they talk Ooh. about their on and off relationship. Uh, and I'm going to talk about real quick. I'm another... going to hold you in contempt of the <laughs> bedroom. <laughs> and the bailiff just stands there the whole time watching. Yeah, and in, <laughs> like with a leather, like a gag on. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, another good friend of theirs, uh, Bailey Keller, who is a detective, like um, works in a different office. You know, she's not part of the DA's office, but she is pretty close with Rachel. Rachel likes her and respects her. I think Bailey is a little bit younger and reminds Rachel of a younger version of herself. And the three of them, Rachel, Tony, and Bailey, are like a trio of friends. They go out to drinks a couple times in the book. They are regularly checking in on not only how they're doing in their various lines of work, but 
how they're doing just in their personal lives. Uh, and it's it's an interesting bedrock for the character relationships. It's kind of just taken as a given that these people are friends, that they like each other, that they help each other. Uh, I think that lends it to some of the TV DNA that we've kind of been talking about in this type of story. But also, I think it's born out of just real experience. Like and it gives you, it gives you other characters who you can depend on. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at least like narratively. And then if you're if you're doing this, and she, from what you said, she seems to have been doing this with an eye towards sequels, having a bunch of like pre-established character relationships to play off of, gives you more story threads to set up and and then pull on later. Yes, certainly. Like uh, Rachel and. Tony share the same boss, Eric, who's the head of their office, and he doesn't do too much in this book except tell them not to break the rules. Like, that's his job. <laughs> <laughs> he just pokes his head into their offices. Is like, is there any rule breaking going on in here? <laughs> good. All right, great. All right, you yeah, later. you know, you. I know you're good. Yeah, I, I just got to check, you know. You know, all right. Did you sign Denise's card? <laughs> it's her birthday. Oh my god, can you imagine like cake days in an office where the stakes are like murder and serial like sexual abuse? Like mm-hmm. no one wants to have cake in that office? Or, or do they need you cake only all the want to have cake? Yeah. <laughs> Got to hit the cake. Got to hit that cake. Uh Rachel's partner Jake is he's a quiet guy. We like him. He does he shares Rachel's penchant for uh what I think some of us now, like five years after the publication of this novel, talk about is like a really crappy work-life balance, okay. <laughs> which, uh, where like in the first couple of pages, Rachel comments that of the three of them, Tony is able to leave her work in the office. Like she goes home and she doesn't really think about her work and Jake and Rachel carry it around with them all the time, which I don't, I feel like it would be really difficult not to to carry it around with you all the time yeah with this kind of work i guess i mean i feel like a lot of people i know that i work with people like i i have a hard time leaving stuff Mm -hmm. at work i mean partly because i work at home i i work with other people who similarly have a hard time with that but then i know some people who are like they're gone at like 5 30 and they are not answering emails and they're not doing anything and i'm not i don't I don't resent it. I am I am like jealous of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wish that I could. So like good on I think it's realistic to have like one person who can figure out how to do that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And to have it be remarkable that they have indeed figured out how to do that. Okay. Uh so the three of them are working in the office and you know there's their boss Eric who doesn't like rule breakers and the first scene is Rachel, Tony, and Jake, excuse me, planning to maybe go for dinner or drinks after a successful case. Tony's like, nah, I got to go home. I'm responsible. Jake's like, ah, I got something to do. And they talk about how they don't really know Jake outside the office. Like, he kind of keeps to himself, but they respect his work. Mm -hmm. Well, so she goes home. There's this awkward thing, and this plays out through the rest of the book. When I read it, it was really bizarre. Uh... This is like the 10th or fourth, tenth or 11th page of the book. I swung into my jacket and slung the strip of my briefcase over my shoulder, then reached into my coat pocket and flipped off the safety on my palm-sized 22 Beretta. Like, you're just walking home from the office, lady. I guess it's dangerous out there. <laughs> and then she goes on to say that, like, she doesn't have a permit to carry. Like, because she's not a cop. Do not, do not let, what's the name of the guy who doesn't like it when you break rules? Eric. Don't let Eric know. Don't let Eric know that you're just carrying guns around. And she's got different guns for different days, depending on how she's feeling. Really? Yeah. Depending on how she's like, if she's feeling like what type of trouble she might get into. Wait, you're going to have to explain to me like the, the difference between the kinds of guns that somebody could could walk around with like discreetly the main two that i recall are it's a 22 beretta and like a 357 smith and wesson or something 
And so it's like the 357 is a bigger gun. How do they capture her different moods? I think it's more, it's not, maybe it's not mood, it's not like a mood ring, but like a DEFCON level. Like, okay. if she feels like she's so going to get she feels in more bigger trouble. She's going to carry the bigger gun so she yes. can kill people more with it. Yes. So she kill them harder. I think so. And it's what not till like eighty okay. percent of the way through the book that she finally gets a permit to concealed carry. All right. I mean, you're a lawyer. It feels like you should you should know the order that these things are supposed to happen in. But you know what? You do you, Rachel Knight. Yeah, you do you. Yeah. Um. So she heads home. She lives in a hotel, which is like an interesting quirk. That that sounds on- expensive. Yeah, well, it's not expensive because she worked on this case where someone got like uh, murdered in the hotel parking lot, and like the CEO of the hotel like let her stay there while she was working on the case at a really reduced rate, and then uh, she ended up just staying there. Okay, like I think her mom passed away, and like she she. And so, is there like a there's like a bellboy or like a bartender or something there who she talks with all the time? Is there like somebody at that hotel who is who who provides her like a sounding board who isn't a a co-worker not always his i think his name is drew and he's the bartender and lo and behold after a couple visits drew and uh rachel's cop friend bailey hit it off okay so just as tony is occasionally sleeping with a judge bailey may or may not be sleeping with the bartender at rachel's house hotel Okay, and who's sleeping with Rachel? Like, like, is that a going concern? Well, that will become a going concern in just a few pages. Oh, boy. I so can't wait. Rachel goes back to the hotel, and I think it's an interesting detail to give this character because at least, you know, through the first half of this book, she really doesn't feel settled. She's uh, like a lot of these kind of cop lawyer characters in these stories. She's got an inherent brokenness. There's like stuff like there's stuff she hasn't gotten over. There's stuff that she works through as she stuff works. That she's on. seen. She's seen too much. She's seen a little too much. When she was younger, her younger sister was like kidnapped or disappeared, and that comes up a couple times, but never gets resolved. So I feel like that's going to be like a thing that would track through other books, like her sister Romy disappearing. Okay. Um, also, she was in a significant relationship with this guy named Daniel. And damn, he, Daniel! I know, damn. Did I, am why? I doing this right? Did I do <laughs> I it? I think that's how the meme works. Did I make a uh, joke? You did make a joke. Yes. He is another attorney. They hit it off while she was like cross-examining him as an expert on the witness stand. And then she didn't really understand how often he was out of town for work and kind of like shut down because she couldn't handle the long-distance relationship. There's like a line about this is like it feels oddly easy, like. Her psychiatrist diagnoses her with issues of object constancy, where like like she's a baby. <laughs> well, <laughs> not object permanence. You left the room. I don't know where you are. <laughs> but like, I guess the word constancy has changed from permanence because it's like, oh well, when I was younger, there was a traumatic experience where my sister like disappeared. So now I think when people leave, they're not going to come back. Like emotionally, I'm sorry. They're not I'm, come I'm back. sorry. I'm finding this funny. But <laughs> it, it is a little. I highlighted it. It felt a little wonky as it was included. Uh, so she sometimes like, people sometimes play people play peekaboo with me and they, they hide their <laughs> hide their face behind their hands and I don't I don't know if the face is gonna come back. I can't have a serious relationship with her, with you right now. My last boyfriend really liked to play peekaboo and it terrified uh, me. Uh, tore me apart inside. <laughs> One time he took my nose. I still haven't gotten it back. <laughs> Uh, she'll occasionally run into him in, in downtown LA and it'll like throw her for a loop because she just like wasn't able to articulate what was wrong and the relationship went sour. So mm. she, I'll get to who she hooks up with because she's going home to the hotel. This is all the beginning of the book. And she sees some flashing lights and cop cars, etc., down by like a low rent motel, like a block or two away from the hotel. Okay. It's like, what's going on over here? She sees her coroner buddy, Scott, who she relies on for information throughout the book. That's a real solid white guy name. Yes, Scott. Eric, Eric Drew, and Scott. Uh-huh. And uh, 
this other guy, um, Graydon Hale, I think is his name. Let me make sure I get that right. This sounds like a like maybe a rejected name for Christian Grey. Yeah, Graydon Hales. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Graydon Hales walks Man, up and is like, That's a good sp- name. Are you supposed to be here? And she's like, Oh, my friend Scott's gonna give me a ride home. And, she, and he's like giving her a little bit of gruff. And they get interrupted because uh some of the officers are rolling out bodies from a double murder at the hotel. And one of them is her partner, Jake. Oh no, Jake. Oh no, Jake indeed. So the one of the threads of this book is what the heck happened to Jake? He was found in this motel with a with a boy the age of 16 or 17 named Kit. Mm-hmm. There was a pornographic photo of Kit in Jake's pocket. And that it doesn't was, look good. Nope. And it was staged or looked like anyway a like murder suicide. I'm sure that like Jake was meeting him to for like a case or something and then someone came upon them and, and murdered them. I don't know. Like I don't know if I'm if I got this right, but that feels like maybe the setup. So that's certainly what Rachel thinks. And mm-hmm. she's confronted with the fact that she doesn't know a lot about his personal life and has to set of off to meet with Jake's sister and meet with this uh 17 year olds like foster mom and that is how that case kind of goes and the problem is is that that case gets kicked up to the fbi with lieutenant graden hales leading as the like la representative on the case okay so of course she ends up like he asks her to go to lunch with him one day because he's into her and she's sort of into him his okay. his line is actually you ever eat lunch? The answer's never gonna be no, so I guess that's pretty good game. It's a pretty good game. Do you ever eat lunch? No. You ever eat lunch? You ever eat lunch? You ever eat lunch? Hey Andrew, have you, try, have you tried it? It's real good. <laughs> and, and it's like their relationship is really charmingly easy over the there's like that is not a priority of the book no 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 not at all it's actually remarkable that he helps her along the way because she's not supposed to be investigating what happened to jake it's a federal matter at this point and if she pokes her nose where it doesn't belong she's going to get in trouble Okay. Just look, she, listen. I keep trying to find signs of sinister stuff because you mentioned Phoenix, right? Like some one of the good guys has a turnout to have been a bad guy all along. So I'm just I'm trying to prime the pump for okay, that. Okay. Okay. Uh, so she's working on that case surreptitiously with her friend Bailey's help, and occasionally she'll like have drinks or lunch with Graydon, and he'll like drip a little bit of the case that he can afford to send her way. Now. Because Jake died, mm-hmm. all of the cases that he was working on get assigned to other people. And the case that uh, Rachel has to pick up is the Densmore rape. So uh, this guy who is like a, a big rich doctor man named Frank Densmore, who's also like a marathon cyclist and basically a jerk, like a rich jerk. Okay. There's not much. There's only a little bit more to him than that. I'm just gonna imagine Lance Armstrong. Yeah, like a yeah, sure. Post doping revelation, Lance. Yes, Armstrong. when everyone decided that maybe it was okay to not like. When him. everyone stood up as one and said, "You know what? No, I'm taking no. off. I'm taking off this yellow bracelet. I do not support this man." Is what we all said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, live strong, live wrong. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Was that a thing? I I don't know. I said it like I'd heard it before, and maybe I just made it up. It's. I feel like I've like I can see it in my head, just like drawn in red sharpie by hand on poster board. <laughs> it's distinctly possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Rachel sets out to solve this rape case. It's interesting for her because. She mostly specializes in murders, and she even remarks that she hasn't had a live victim in a while. 
Yikes. And Frank's daughter, Susan, who I believe is in her sophomore year of high school, uh, was raped by an unknown assailant because it happened at night and the man uh, covered her face with a pillow so that she couldn't see who he was. Okay. Um, and there's like this whole section where her and Bailey go up to this like big mansion. And one of the reasons that it's interesting it's in LA is because, um, as Marsha Clark has said in interviews, and it's not a thing that I really have a sense of, you know, living on the East Coast and never having been further west than South Dakota, um, that LA has like really clear stratification. It's like a bunch of different cities both culturally and economically, like, sprawled all together and mixed together. I don't know if you've experienced that in your trips out west. Probably LA, not. LA, I haven't been to a whole lot. I know that, um, like, San Francisco's, it's got it's got a lot of problems, and, and the stratification is becoming really clear insofar as nobody who's not a tech millionaire can afford to actually <laughs> live in San Francisco anymore. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Okay. But it's, it's the the cities are, it's just it's a weird feel. The cities are really different because they're they're they were built in like the age of of cars, and they're still very like car centric. And yeah, it's just a totally different feel. It, there are some passages that have that like SNL Californians feel of like let me list a bunch of highways that I took to get somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I can't help but giggle when I see that kind of stuff, even though I I know... I kind of get that, though, because now, like, I get so many more New Jersey Turnpike exit (laughs) jokes now than I did, like, five years ago. That's true. It it becomes, like, a badge of honor of just, like, grokking the geography of where you live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's... it's, A lot of really good jokes are really specific. Uh Uh-huh. And geography jokes, yeah, they they really they are amazing if you have any idea what the person is talking about, and otherwise it's just like okay, whatever, I'm gonna skip this one. Yeah. So the main thing with the Densmore case is that they already have a suspect. Uh, Densmore's daughter Susan, bum, bum, bum. I know, was tutoring this man named uh, Luis Reveo, I think, or Re- mm-hmm. I think it's Reveo. Or Revelo, I'm not sure. He's he's a Hispanic member of this gang called the Silmore Sevens. Is it a double L in his name? It's not. So is it Revelo? I think it's it would be L. Revelo. I think if it was like Reveo, it would be two. You're L's. right. You're right. You're right. Um, what's interesting about Luis is he's like a head honcho in this street gang, mm-hmm. yet he volunteered to take part. In, like, a high school program at Palisades High where Susan gets to, like, tutor people from other neighborhoods. And his goal is to, like, get out of his criminal lifestyle. But all the scenes we see him in, he's really excited about and good at his criminal lifestyle. Like... (laughs) He's intimidating. You his... don't. You don't have to love what you're good at. Like that's I just guess. some people's lot in life. I just don't. I my critique of Luis, even though he's a fun character, uh, is that I don't quite get why he's trying to get out the game. Because he's real. He's good at the game. He's and he seems to enjoy being part of the game. If that makes sense. Like I don't. Maybe he just needs to. He needs to be Rachel's like friend who gets results even though it's not strictly legal like it's, i feel like a lot of crime shows sort of have the um like the informant character or somebody mm-hmm. like that who's sort of in between somewhere yes and he certainly serves that function in the book so mm-hmm. even though he's the lead suspect rachel feels from a mile away that maybe that's not the guy maybe that's too easy and susan flat out says in private i like Luis a lot like we're not dating or anything I think he's a really great guy I I don't think that he did this to me um and when they go to like pick him up he books it and it's like an episode of cops like when the action breaks out in this book it's really it's really comes out of nowhere there's a couple action sequences where they're like just talking to people and then walk into the next thing and all of a sudden someone's getting shot out or someone's like trying to climb out a window uh, and it's pretty. And you can effective. hear the music. You can hear the music. Like just yes. start with the bongos and whatever. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna <laughs> do? Um, so eventually they end up teaming up with Luis to get some more information on this case. 
and like you say like they do some kind of they break some rules like they go undercover to visit one of his guys in jail and it's like i don't think i don't know that da's do that i don't know that they do in this book i guess they do i guess that's a thing that they do uh and the so these are the two cases that are happening and lo and behold wouldn't you believe it andrew i would they're sort of related like okay the people involved uh share criminal activity uh that i don't actually want to spoil because i feel like it's an it's one of the uh, most interesting parts of the book is how that information gets kind of doled out and mm-hmm. how it, it'll introduce either a new suspect or a new player in the game that causes complications and, and forces them to either think outside the box or think a little bit harder than than they initially had been. Okay. So, okay, we, we've been summing up a lot of character beats and that sort of the overarching plot and stuff, but talk talk to me a little bit about, like, the prose and the writing and, and that kind of thing, because, like, we, we started this episode being a little surprised that Marcia Clark was writing novels, not because we didn't think that she could write novels, but just because it seemed like a, it seemed like an odd turn for her to to take after being an, an actual attorney i guess um is there like what did you think of how the book was written and also as a follow-up was there anything in here that stuck out to you as particularly first novel e if that makes sense mm, okay <laughs> so there's a couple <laughs> things that i really like that she does and some of them are small and some of them are big um there are Luis, as I mentioned, um, is this gangbanger who's trying to get out the game, right? And gangbanger is that the? She uses that term all the time. I don't okay. know if it's like I don't know if we'd. Still I mean, it's use a, it's, that. as a verb, it's a very specific thing. But okay, sure. <sighs> Just she also calls him a shot caller a bunch of times, which maybe is like because he calls the shots. He that's <laughs> obvious. Uh, right field, fifth row. That's where I'm hitting the ball. That's most of what he does. Um, Eight ball, corner pocket. There you go. If you miss that, the game's over. But I'm stalling while I look. For you it. are, yeah, definitely. That means <laughs> you, you need me to it? do. Can I do anything else for you to help you stall? No, here if, we go. Okay, great. So, <laughs> one of the ways that she illustrates that Luis is trying to get out the game is through his speech and i'm not she doesn't overuse uh kind of broken english or anything like he dips in and out of spanish occasionally and like uses some uh spanish terms but it's mostly that he will use slang and then correct himself so when she gets shot at after visiting some students at the the young the the dead uh guy that jake was found with uh, Kit's school mm-hmm. he says nobody fired no excuse me any shots at you and then like later down the page goes uh, no one makes a big move like messing with a DA or a cop lest I call the shot and I didn't and it's spelled D-I-N apostrophe T didn't and then it's a hyphen I didn't give a green light on that and so there's this like constant uh, self-editing that Luis is doing that's like reinforcing the positive narrative that Susan, the the rape victim, is telling about him. Okay. That he is studious, that he is trying to, like, raise himself above this above this world. And I think at, it feels a little heavy-handed at times, but also I can see it's effective in making Luis a likable character well, that we and don't suspect. There's a whole, like, while, we talk, while we're talking about uncomfortable subtext, I guess, there's this whole... Yeah, there's this whole thing there where like you have to speak a certain read white way to like be seen as respectable in society, Certainly. which sucks. That does suck, uh, and it, it's, it's interesting that she's using it that that way. And it's I probably agree, born but, out yeah. of her experience too, which mm-hmm. is which is not to be uh, ignored. There's an interesting article that's only tangentially related to this about that I read a couple weeks ago about reporters correcting 
quotes from like athletes who don't speak English as a first language and like if you're speaking to someone after a game there was like a pretty big quote that came out where like it was a grammatically in uh standard American speech was kind of a mess but like that's not that guy's first language and it just sounded kind of weird and the person put it in in writing and it made it look like he was making fun of that person yeah right yeah uh and the reporter's argument was like no i'm just accurately representing who he is and i don't know that i have an opinion on where we should fall with that uh and maybe someone else reading this kind of what you're saying would see it as more problematic than i found it and Mm -hmm. i totally hear that Um, yeah okay but i can see what she's trying to do yeah for sure um other interesting things that i that like I really liked about her writing style were kind of the maybe they're authentic, maybe they're like things she wished she wished that she'd done, but like the stuff that sh- this character can get away with. Oh, like I, I think I you read to me like her description of what Rachel Knight is like. <laughs> yeah, there's already some serious wish fulfillment going on in this book. I guarantee that like, that is what is happening. Her getting to dress up in disguise, borrow a friend's like driver's license and sneak her way into a prison to talk to a dude what is this a melissa mccarthy movie now yeah at one point they like plant a news story or they like release a statement saying that they've found their perp to entice their suspected perp into like surfacing and being less cautious okay which that sounds sounds like like the oldest trick in the book yeah and it's kind of cool to watch it in action um and there are a couple times there's one quote i i really like some of her prose is a little on the nose like some of it's like i don't know how that when you when you say on the nose what do you mean it's just like too it's too obvious or it's trying to be writerly and not quite getting there or says sleep with the fishes once and it doesn't seem Eh, ironic okay all right we all we all do cliches i don't know i have this whole i have a running list of things i i am in the position for and have been for like the last six or eight months where i'm editing people now and i've got like a no no cliche list (laughs) i know you do (laughs) like people like i i people should not say like clocks in at or when you should just say has or is (laughs) like avoid dumb wiggle words that I I'm just I don't hearing... like the phrase double down every time I someone uses it I want to cut my leg off. Oh, see you I say double down a lot. But not if, in if writing. If you're actually if you're playing poker, go for it, dude. Like uh I use it when I'm uh, directing. I use it like like doubling down on a character's intention or emotion. Cuz yeah, then then I'm just like encouraging yeah. yeah. I'm not writing it to like be presented to the world. Anyway, yeah, you're just, I know you're making you mad. Um, you're just, no, you're just saying it with your voice to be heard by the world. It's totally different. <laughs> not even the same thing. Uh, there are some times where I really like a turn of phrase that she has. Um, she, when they when Rachel meets this kid Kit's foster mom, and she laments that this woman kind of has to live in almost squalor while someone like. Uh, Frank Densmore gets to like live in his palatial mansion. Um, she describes her as all her colors were faded, as though she'd been run through the wash too many times, and the sag of her features spoke of little sleep and too much worry for too many years. And it's like it's not too much; it's kind of just enough. Yeah, I like that. It has an element of work to it with this woman, which this woman has clearly put in. Yeah, and it's it's not a cliche, but it's also a thing that pretty much everybody's gonna gonna know yeah like we've it, all we've all got that shirt that we noticed one day that is just not looking like it used to and it makes us a little sad exactly mm-hmm. uh some of the things that feel a little either much or a little awkward to my reader's ear she talks about ringtones your, your reader's ear don't think about it too hard just holding your ear up to a book that's how i read god that explains a lot of stuff about this <laughs> podcast doesn't it she talks about ringtones a lot like it's 2011 like <laughs> like we were watching Kimmy Schmidt and like somebody's using a Blackberry in the year of our Lord 2016 like nobody does that anymore like just now with, it's just it's just outdated enough to be like wait really like you should know better than this in Marsha Clark's defense 
at one point yeah, wait Rachel, wait in her defense oh get it uh, uh Mar- she rachel clark rachel clark Mar- rachel knight uh marcia knight um does critique rachel knight is the name i know does critique uh bailey the the officer for still using a blackberry when she could have an iphone like that yeah, is, that is that appro- that's an appropriate thing to do in 2011 and yet rachel knight at one point remarks when someone calls her phone and the crystal ship by the doors plays like naming the actual like classic rock ringtones is f- uh, and i don't know i one of the reasons i highlighted this is because in prose to me it feels awkward but when it like happens on television and it just like is an easter egg of a ringtone yeah it's like a subtle it's saying a subtle thing about whoever is calling yes and like in a, in a book if you're gonna if you're just gonna talk about somebody's cell phone ringing you would or somebody getting a text message or something like what are you gonna say you're gonna say oh the that stupid that that iphone mm-hmm. notification noise played or oh that annoying samsung phone like whistled notification noise played <sighs> yeah and it's awkward because you know book when is... you're on a plane and it lands and you're just hearing that whistle noise for like five straight minutes. God, it's pretty bad. Samsung. Well, and part of it is that this book is in the first person, which I think makes a lot of the prose, which might otherwise feel clunky, work because then you're just in this character's head. Right. Yeah. It makes stuff like that feel even more awkward. Because it's a character like reporting ringtones. Well, because you're not going to think, oh yeah, that's that's what's it? It's by the doors. Yes, it's, you're not going to mm. think that to yourself. It's just kind of a thing that where it will it will register so briefly and quickly that you wouldn't even remark upon it. Yes, in that way. Uh, at one point, Rachel Knight says, uh, "And just like I always say, or like just like my motto, better to ask forgiveness than permission." And it's, like, delivered in a way that, like, that's everyone's motto. Yeah, like, that's not a thing that you came up with, my dude. <laughs> it's little things like that. It just, uh, it just like I always say, just <laughs> a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. There's also a preponderance. It's like my grandfather oh told my me. God. Another day, another dollar. <laughs> penny saved is a penny kill me. That's uh, on his tombstone. <laughs> There's also a preponderance of restaurants in this book, as okay. in like they go like they go the o- the OG and they get them bottomless breadsticks or what are you talking about? They go to a lot of places to eat, and every time it gets at least two or three sentences talking about like why that restaurant's a cool place to go, the, like the Applebee's barbecue bacon bomb like, burger or whatever like, like oh the, let's go to the church and state see you later oh let's go oh i'll take you to wait, wait, engine is that company the name of a restaurant yeah i'm gonna just give you oh, a couple that's such a cool restaurant theme idea I'm, I'm gonna take you to engine company 28 because i know you love it there oh let's go to el chavo for margaritas let's go to charlie o's and see some jazz i'll pick you up later and we'll go to the pacific dining car or we'll go to the cover it's easy to have a quiet conversation there okay so to the the thing about this, like we just talked about specificity and it being important to like creating a, a certain yes. feel for a book. So I'm cool with using the names of the restaurants. I am less cool with then describing the reason why you would be going to those restaurants because a person yeah. like the other person, if they live there, they would know like why you were going to that particular place. There's always just that little extra justification of the of the choice. Yeah. And to, to that point is to your earlier question is like first novelly. That's what I'm hearing. OK. And I, I would given the other strengths of the book, I feel like it would probably sort itself out in in future uh installations of okay. the story and then so, I, and, uh i, I want to ask you we're, we're getting we're running a little bit long do you want like closing arguments do you got any anything that you really need to wrap up before we before yeah we go? uh two two things i really like all the characters i think they're really well realized i believe all of their relationships and even when even when the action is a little outlandish uh the characters behave like realistically in them mm-hmm. um and i feel like i can see them taking care of each other and see them invested in what they like um and and what they're about 
Though, I will say, I wish she'd stuck to her guns at the end. And And what does that mean? I'm not going to spoil everything. It suffice to say that, like, one of the main hang-ups that Rachel has about her partner being killed and the circumstances in which he was found, you know, murder, potential murder-suicide with this underage boy. Mm -hmm. So she's like, is he gay? Is he a pedophile? Was he hooked up with this, like, teenage prostitution pornography ring? Like, what is all of that about? It gets resolved in that, like, as you guessed, there's someone else who is involved in what happened there. But she could have left it alone without us really fully understanding who this person was and have that be, like, a lesson that Rachel has to learn from. Like, there's even pros where she acknowledges that like i guess i'm never gonna find out what really happened and what he was all about and then there's like an epilogue where a character like explains that he was like a saint who like worked with these underage boys and their problems and was always checking up on them all right so you're not quite trusting your reader to to really get it yeah and like the reader the reader probably based on the rest of the book, assumes that that's what was happening anyway, mm-hmm. right? We have no reason to believe otherwise. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's not trying to it's not trying to hoodwink you like the book is being fairly obvious about what it's trying to do all the way through already. It's so trying to, like, to go the extra mile there feels a little weird. Yeah, it's trying to give you what you probably had already decided, mm-hmm. but like the reader's decision to believe that or Rachel's decision to believe that I personally find to be more dramatically interesting than just telling me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show don't tell and all that. It's uh, like it's like my my great uncle used to say. <laughs> Show don't tell. Never heard that one before. Did you have one last question as we wrap this thing up? No. Cool. I'm good. The, People the, should per, the pers- prosecution rests. Um, I didn't get to talk about. <laughs> How one cop got sent away for a case for, tr- quote, travel bennies. Um, that struck me funny that happened. Okay. He's, he's traveling to a Bennigan's, I guess. Yeah, that's how it works. Also, there's a bunch of cable news digs, which I think is great considering Marsha Clark's Yeah, she here. hates cable news. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Is there any like one that you specifically called out? If not, we can move on. But if No, we... I'm going to find it. Here it is. Hold right. on. She's talking about... Jake's sister, who uh, is a psychiatrist and works on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and that's the the thing that the DSM that gets called. Yeah, DSM Um, five like just came out. I think so, or it has been threatening to come out for a while. (laughs) Oh God, back up! Here it's coming. Um, She says, "Shrinks who." testify for the defense at trial often refer to it when they're trying to tell the jury why the defendant wasn't responsible for the rape murder and burning of a dozen women in their 80s i love this kind of testimony the way keith olbermann loves bill (laughs) o'reilly it's like wow (laughs) jeez it's so like of the moment slash of 10 years ago yeah slash of a woman who grappled with cable news all the time and I oh I love it. It's it's just there's he was such a, he was as ineffectual as Anderson Cooper. <laughs> there's oh god he blustered his way through it like Chris Matthews like <laughs> just like a real acerbic detail that doesn't really matter. He looked it, a little confused about what was going on, much like Wolf Blitzer. I could see through his argument, much like I could see through that hologram of Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I dug this book a lot. I think the the crime is is really interestingly explored, and my misgivings about the partic- some like minor particulars of the writing aside, uh, it was really entertaining. And I think that Marsh Clark seems like a cool lady that I'm kind of happy. Um, no, not kind of. I'm very happy to end up reading this for the show. Great, good. That's all I got. Glad I made you read something that you like. If you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't always happen. No, sometimes, yeah, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. If you want to talk to us more about OJ or Marja Clark or whatever, I guess, you can do it on Twitter at twitter.com slash overdue pod or on facebook.com slash overdue pod. We also have an email address, um, overdue pod at gmail.com. 
Uh, we're going to be recording in the next couple weeks our uh, our listener Q&A episode. We're toying with the idea of doing like a live sort of Google Hangouts where people can like call in and watch and ask questions live. Like people seemed kind of into that idea. So we might end up doing like a mix of that and then um, like email questions. But we've already gotten a bunch of them. So thanks to everybody who sent those in so far. Um, Craig, if they want to find out more about the show, where should they go? The longtime listeners will know that they can go to www.overduepodcast.com where they can find links gotta to old that episodes. WWW in there. I got to get that in gotta there. Who knows? There. Oh, man. Uh, you can find links to old episodes of the show, links to uh, Amazon listings for the books that we are reading, um, which if you choose to purchase them through Amazon through those links, we get a little bit of a cut. You can Cha-ching. find our RSS feed, our iTunes page, which if you leave a rating or review, we will greatly appreciate it. You could find our podcast hosts, Spreaker, our podcast network, HeadGum, thanks to those guys. And you can also find information on our Patreon project, which is a way to contribute monthly to the show. This bonus episode would not have happened without... Uh, Patreon support. So I want to thank Kelly, Kenley, Melissa, Lou, Natalie, Elizabeth, uh, Keisha, Michael, and Aaron, all of whom joined our illustrious Patreon core in the month of May. Um, Ellen as well, excuse me. And thank you guys. Otherwise, uh, this episode wouldn't have happened and yeah. I wouldn't have read this book. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks. I guess that's it. Some of these, I these guess that's it. Like, was my, how is my energy level? Am I good? Am I good? I, I think it was pretty good. I don't think I got enough phoenix right out of you objection objection hold it mister (laughs) that's all i wanted yeah yeah okay cool (laughs) everybody we will uh i I guess patrons will get this tomorrow friday and then non-patrons will get the week after that whatever we read next uh until then try to be happy That was a HeadGum Podcast.